0: Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Hello, my name is Bernice Hsu, and I'm delighted to be speaking here today with my colleague Jan Barris, Vice President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. We are here to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Chinese ping pong team's historic visit to the United States in 1972, as part of what we call ping pong diplomacy, and which changed the course of the world. This interview is released on April 12th, the exact date that the Chinese team visited the United States. So Jan, to kick us off, can you please describe what it was like when the Chinese team landed in Detroit, Michigan? And by the way, why
1: was Detroit picked as the first city? So 50 years ago today, as you mentioned, April 12, is when the Chinese plane, actually it was an American plane, it was a Pan Am plane that we chartered and which went and picked the Chinese team up and brought them back. They landed in Detroit because the heads of the two co-hosting organizations, the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations and the U.S.-China Table Tennis Team, were both very serendipitously from the Detroit metropolitan area. The chair of the National Committee was Alex Eckstein, who was a professor of Chinese economics at the University of Michigan. And the chair of the US Table Tennis Association was Graham Steenhoven. And Graham was a shop steward in the Chrysler plant, in one of the Chrysler plants, in Detroit, Michigan. So just very serendipitously, the two men happened to live within 30 miles of one another. And also serendipitously, the Detroit airport at the time was right smack in the middle of Ann Arbor, where the University of Michigan is, and Detroit. And so that's where the team arrived. As to what it was like when the team arrived, there's an iconic picture that we have up on the wall in our office and that we love to show everyone of the ping pong team filing off of the plane. And my recollection is that those of us who were watching on the ground for us, it was a very exciting moment. There was a lot of, as the Chinese like to say, renou, a lot of excitement on the ground. First of all, there were a lot of people there to welcome them. There were the heads and other leadership of the two host organizations that I've already described. There were several of the ping pong players, the American players who had gone on the 1971 trip to China, which we can get into in a moment. There were two representatives from the White House. There was also a crowd of people, which, as I recall, was primarily students, but other people from Chinese communities in the southern Michigan area who were there holding signs saying, welcome, Rilia, Huanying, etc. And then covering this whole event was a group, a very large group of print journalists, television media, radio media from mostly the United States and China because the Chinese had sent several teams of reporters and journalists and film documentary crews, but also media from a variety of other countries in the world because this was really a major event. Great. Thank you. So let's go back a bit and talk about what led up to all this. What was the context in both countries that enabled a trip like this to happen? The context was that up until the advent of the Nixon administration, actually both peoples, the Chinese and the Americans, had been sort of acclimated by what they were hearing their government say about the other country, what the media in both countries were saying, what the propaganda teams in China were saying about the other, had conditioned the Americans and Chinese to think the worst of each other. There had been some initiatives over the years, some by the Chinese side. For instance, Zhou Enlai at one point offered to allow the mothers of some of the American prisoners of war who were in jails in China to come. The Chinese had allowed the American journalist, Edgar Snow, to come in, and Mao had given him a long, important interview. And on the American side, there, in fact, was people think that the the first group of Americans that went to China was the ping pong team. But actually, in 1957, there was a group of young Americans who had been at a worldwide rally in Russia. They went to China. Uh, State Department wasn't too pleased about it. But these young Americans didn't care. They went anyway. So there had been a few tentative probes. But basically, not a lot was done about any of these. And most of the things that I just mentioned were done either by the American or the Chinese side and weren't met with the appropriate uh, recognition that the other side had hoped for. The one thing that they did do jointly were the Warsaw talks that took place in Warsaw from 1955 until 1970. But those really stopped and stalled and stopped and stalled again. But I think because of the Cold War, because of the fact that we had diplomatic relations with Taiwan, and because of the very sort of ingrained anti-communism aura in the United States, it was very hard for any of these initial attempts at reconciliation to go anywhere. Now all of that changed when Richard Nixon became President of the United States in 1968, and It's really surprising that Richard Nixon, who had been a very strong anti-communist proponent, and a a stalwart anti-Red China communist proponent, should be the president who actually was able to initiate the opening to the People's Republic. He did it first, before he was president, in 1967, when he was running for office, in an article that he wrote for Foreign Affairs. But then, at least as as Dr. Kissinger recalls it, the first foreign policy initiative that Nixon told Dr. Kissinger he wanted him to pursue was an opening to China. So there were small uh, initiatives that were taken in the 1970s and, and up until 1971, April of 71. This was all very personal to me, because I was posted in Hong Kong for the Foreign Service. And I really love to shop. And when I first got to Hong Kong, I was told you cannot shop in any store that's run by the Chinese communists. And the best store in town to get sort of really lovely arts and crafty kinds of things was a communist store called China Arts and Crafts. It was right across the road from the Kowloon Ferry Terminal, so very convenient. And we, Americans, were not supposed to even walk into those stores. And I and my colleagues as Foreign Service Officers, it was especially the case that we weren't supposed to shop there because we were violating U.S. law. I have to admit, I hope the statute of limitations is over, but I have to admit that I did shop there on more than one occasion. Uh, And then I noticed that in January of 1971, That restriction was gone. And there were a few other restrictions, mostly economic restrictions, that were lessened or eliminated entirely that most Americans wouldn't have noticed. But those people who were involved in U.S.-China relations or American trade relations would have known. Those signals by the Americans were met on the Chinese side by the extraordinary events that took place in Nagoya in April of 1971. And that was the first part of ping-pong diplomacy. So the story is that in 1971, the Japanese held the annual World Ping-Pong Championships. They rotated from year to year to different countries. 1971 was Nagoya. And the Chinese team, which had not played in World Championships for many years, were there. It was the first time that they were playing on the world scene after a a hiatus of several years. One day, an American player by the name of Glenn Cowan, who was a very outgoing, hippie Mm -hmm. ping pong player, who with long hair, wore bandanas, wore peace t-shirts, Glenn overslept, which apparently was not unusual for him, but this time when he overslept, he missed the bus that was taking the American team from their hotel to the practice venue. So he ran out, looks around, no bus, at least no American bus, and so he just hops on the first bus that came along. As it happened, it was the Chinese bus. He gets on, the Chinese freeze because they'd been told, don't talk to Americans, they're the enemy, you shouldn't be talking to them, you shouldn't be interacting with them. So no one knew what to do. But the head of the delegation was a man by the name of Zhuang Zedong. Was very affable, outgoing, and, and just personally very friendly guy. So Zhuang Zedong stirred up his own courage, and he said later that it was because he had remembered that Chairman Mao had recently given an interview to Edgar Snow, the journalist I mentioned before, and so Zhuang decided that that if the chairman had done it, that that must have given him some sort of him, Zhuang Zedong the permission to go up and talk to Glenn. So he did. When I say talk, they really was more through gestures because neither side spoke the other language. So after a lot of gestures and a lot of smiles and whatever went on, when the trip came to an end, it's Chinese are very polite, and when they come to another country, they bring bags full of things that they can give away as presents. And so Zhuang went into his bag to see what he had. He pulled up a, uh, a scroll that was a picture of the beautiful Huangshan Mountains, and he gave that to Glenn. Glenn's looking around for something to give him, but he had nothing except a comb in his pocket. And so he decided that wasn't a very good idea. But the next day, he searched out Zhuang Zedong and presented him with a t-shirt with a big peace symbol on it and the words from a Beatles song, Let It Be. The journalists had caught word of this, and there were people there to capture that photograph. And also, the Chinese delegation had sent word back to China that this had occurred. And I think within the minds of Chairman Mao and Zhou Enlai, the wheels started turning, and they thought, well, maybe we can be sending a signal to perhaps match some of the signals that the Americans have slowly been, been giving us. And so, to everyone's surprise, the next day, the Chinese team extended an invitation for the American team to visit China. So instead of going directly home to the United States from Nagoya, The invitation was for them to stop off for a week in Beijing. The American team wanted to do that. They wanted to accept the invitation, but they also wanted to be able to offer a reciprocal invitation for the Chinese to come and visit the United States. And that gets into the whole story of how the National Committee got Mm, involved. That was going to be my next question, which was,
0: how did you and the National Committee, first become involved in
1: hosting this delegation. Okay, so let's talk about the committee first. So this offer was extended. I remember when I, I was, as I mentioned, in Hong Kong at the time, so everybody in Hong Kong was agog and thinking, oh my goodness, this could change a lot of things. And apparently back in the United States, the National Committee at that time was a very small organization. There were maybe four or five people working here. The National Committee used to do a lot of work with journalists. One of those journalists was a woman from Newsweek magazine, and she called the office the minute she saw this information come across the wire. Our program director at the time, a man named Doug Murray, immediately called our board, explained what had happened, and said, is this something we should get involved with? The board immediately said yes. And so we sent a cable to Graham Steenhoven, the head of the American table tennis team, and said we would be happy to co-sponsor a visit, a return visit by the Chinese to the United States. So that's how the National Committee got involved. I got involved because I was back from Hong Kong on home leave. I was about to go to Washington to be trained in the Indonesian language um, because my next posting was supposed to be Surabaya, Indonesia. I got a call while on home leave from two former professors, one of whom was Alex Eckstein, then chair of the National Committee. And he and Dick Solomon, another former professor of mine who was also on the board of the National Committee, and they asked me if I would consider taking a year's leave of absence from the Foreign Service and going to the National Committee in order to help work on the ping-pong team. I wasn't quite sure I wanted to do that. They were very generous and gave me the summer to make up my mind. And that summer, while I was thinking about it, on July 15, President Nixon went on television and surprised everyone by saying that Dr. Kissinger had just returned from a secret visit to China, and that during that visit, the negotiations for the Chinese table tennis team coming to the United States had been confirmed, and a visit by President Nixon to China in. February of 1972 had also been confirmed. So hearing that announcement made me think, well, maybe taking a year off from the Foreign Service would be a good idea, and that the ping pong team might not, or the ping pong visit to the United States might not just be a one-off deal. But indeed, if Dr. Kissinger had gone there, that there were much bigger prospects for the relationship to grow and to evolve. So I took what I thought was going to be a one-year leave of absence and 50 years later I'm still here. (laughs) Here you are. Here I am. Great. Thank you. Um, So now moving
0: on to the trip itself, Mm -hmm. um, how would you characterize it? Were there any highlights that you can recall and, you know, what what were some of the activities that you did in the various cities and how would you describe the dynamic between the Chinese ping pong
1: players and the American organizers? First of all, I think it's important to know and understand that for the committee, for the, for the U.S. Table Tennis Association, it was all about ping pong. But for the committee, it was more than that. We wanted to present the United States to China. We wanted, to un- we wanted the Chinese to understand that America was very different than what that their image of the United States had been. And so we wanted to show them our culture, our history, our society, our values. And so we made a lot of effort to supplement the ping-pong activities, which would have been the practices and then the matches. We wanted to go beyond that. And so that's sort of where the committee's playbook started because in all of our subsequent visits, we made sure that we built into them opportunities for the Chinese to get into the communities to meet with people at all levels of society and socioeconomic uh, levels so that they could see both the good um, and some of the bad of America. We didn't want to come off as saying, this is our culture and it's so wonderful. We wanted them to see that we had flaws, that we recognized those, and, and that we were trying to cope with them and make them better. So we arranged a lot of visits to schools, to other educational facilities, to hospitals, to factories, along with trying to provide opportunities for them to have some fun. So picnics and Disneyland, uh, we went to farms, we went to factories, the whole gamut that that we tried to squeeze into this very short two-and-a-half, three-week period. But our goal was really to give them a broad view of the United States and, and how, we, how we worked and how we lived and what we thought about things and to give them opportunities to interact with Americans. We also wanted to ensure, both with this trip and with subsequent events that were performances or athletic events, that any American who wanted to could attend the event and the price wouldn't be a factor. So we purposely... Priced the tickets quite low. I don't think we had a ticket that was over $5 for the ping-pong event. Any American who wanted to attend a performance or an athletic event was able to do so. In terms of the last part of your question, of how the players interacted with the American organizers, that went fine. I think there was more friction between the different groups of Americans mm-hmm. who were on the trip. The public trip.
0: reaction. Um,
1: well, no, it's not the, I'm not talking about the public okay. reaction. I'm talking about when the National Committee runs a program all on our own, we're the ones calling the shots, mm-hmm. and we can do what we want. When you have a co-host which was the case in this instance, you sometimes get along very well with the co-host, and sometimes you don't. I would say ping pong was a mixed one on the whole. I think uh, that the Americans, uh, the U.S. Table Tennis Association and the National Committee got along well, but I was the very lower level of this, and certainly people at my level— got along very well. But the Chinese, I think, hopefully they weren't aware of any tensions between the two host organizations. And then you had added to that, well, this was a people-to-people exchange. The two governments were not involved. We still had some government people on the trip. So the White House had sent two representatives on the trip. One was John Scali, who was then the director. John Scali was a journalist for ABC, and at that point, Nixon had made him his director of communications. So John Scali was actually representing the president. And then Dick Solomon, he was there as a China specialist who could represent the government in case there were any issues. There were also other government officials were the security teams that we traveled with. So one of the things that they came up with about two months before we were ready to welcome the team was that they were very concerned about the team's security and they wanted to make sure that they were protected to the highest extent possible. This was something we had not expected, but the government graciously said yes. So we had traveling with us throughout the entire trip team of about 25 to 30 State Department security officers, and then in each city that we stopped in, the, that team was supplemented by local police, FBI, State Department security, because State Department has offices in a number of major cities around the country. We were always delighted. We were <laughs> delighted because For the most part, our trips, at least for the first few years, all of our exchanges, were very big. They were athletic groups, they were performing arts groups, they were wushu trips. And we were pretty small. And we couldn't, if we had had to do these trips without our security personnel, it would have been infinitely harder. This was before the days of cell phones. They had walkie-talkies. They had an abundance of personnel that they could send to advance our programs the day before, the hour before. So they made our lives a lot easier. The Chinese who were on the delegation were also terrific. I used to think that when the Chinese put their delegations together, they took care to put people on these groups that came to the United States, who not only were professionals and excelled in their own fields, but also who were very open and warm and friendly, because they all came across that way. And for the security guys, instead of being these really strict, stern, harsh, tough people that I was expecting, they were very warm, they were very friendly, and and they were very good-natured. And that's verified by the fact that the two leaders of the security team were rather... Surprisingly, for security officers, uh, were rather portly gentlemen. Mm. They had rather uh, large build, and so the Chinese had nicknames for the two of them, and the nicknames were de Dadu and Da Dadu, which meant number one big tummy mm-hmm. and number two big tummy, and. We, at one point, told the two security guys that those were their names. And they thought that was really quite wonderful. And they called each other that, <laughs> as well. So the Chinese really got along with, with everyone, uh, including people they met along the way. They were very open. They were very gracious. There was an enormous amount of interest in them. And you know that can get wearing after a while. People are coming up to you and asking you questions. You don't understand the language. but You have to be gracious and they were unfailingly gracious. They really were. Great. Um, So given the large amount of security
0: presence, I want to ask, what was the American public's reaction to the Chinese delegation? Was it all positive, or did you experience any negative backlash
1: um, from the public? So it was both. There was both positive and negative reactions. I'm going to start with the negative so that I can end on a more positive note. There were some very minor demonstrations along the way. Sometimes we'd be driving down a street or going into an auditorium and there were sort of silent crowds of people, mostly not shouting or yelling anything, but mostly holding signs. Signs that were go-home commies or Mao has killed more Chinese than Hitler killed Jews. These tended to be evangelical groups, but they really were not a major problem. There was an area where protesters were allowed to stand and they did so and that was fine. There were only two occasions where there were very noticeable, very noisy demonstrations. The first one actually occurred during the initial matches in Detroit. The Chinese were playing in Cobo Hall, which is a large venue in Detroit, and as the Chinese national anthem was being played Up in the balconies, a group of people organized by a very fundamentalist reverend, Carl McIntyre, stood up, started to shout negative things. I can't recall what they were. But what I do recall is that they also threw dead rats or dead mice over the heads of the audience onto the floor as the national anthem, sort of in front of the Chinese team as the national anthem was being played. Now, there were security officers and police, Detroit police, in the arena. And so they immediately went and hustled that group out of there so that it, was, it happened very quickly. I don't think some people who were at the other end might not have noticed. I noticed because I was sitting <laughs> under these flying mice. It was over within minutes, and the show went on. The next time, and the only other time when there was a major disturbance, was when we got to Washington, D.C. We were in a field house at the University of Maryland, Cole Field House. So it set up, picture a, a college basketball gymnasium. And I, again, was at the announcer's table. And on the bleachers behind me, there was a group of about 150, 200, I don't know the size, but a lot of people who had been organized by the Taiwan embassy, because we still had diplomatic relations with Taiwan. And they were very loud and very aggressive and were shouting things throughout the entire length of the matches, uh, urging the Chinese players to defect, shouting, kill Chairman Mao. Defect to the United States, defect to Taiwan—it's a free place. You're not free. A constant barrage of them exhorting the Chinese players to leave China and go someplace else, opposite from me on the other sort of the long, cor- long side of the court, worth three representatives of the United States government. First was Marshall Green, who was the Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia at the State Department. John Scali, who I had mentioned before, was President Nixon's special representative. And at that match was Trisha Nixon. Trisha was the oldest daughter of President Nixon. She's one of these people who always looks perfect, and every hair is in place, and she's always very demure, and a smile on her face, and unflappable. So she's sitting there across from these people who are screaming epitaphs against Communist China. Up in the balcony is a group of students who were very unhappy about the fact that the night before, The United States had started bombing Haiphong Harbor because we were in the middle of the Vietnam War at that point. Those students were not quiet, (laughs) anything but. In fact, they sort of matched in uh, decibel level the Taiwanese who were screaming their own chants. They were screaming and pounding on their seats and stomping their feet up and down Trisha watches ping pong, Nixon bombs high fong. Trisha watches ping pong, Nixon bombs high fong. So there was this cacophony of noise surrounding us with the screams from the Taiwanese, with the screams from the students, and Trisha wasn't screaming. She was just sitting there looking perfectly popular. I was desperate to get the announcer to do something. He was dumbfounded. He didn't know what to do. I just I kept saying, just talk. Say something. The, the players were going on. The players were pretty unfazed by all this. They kept playing. The Chinese officials were very upset. They came up to our leadership and said, well, where's the security? What's going on? Why don't you throw all these people out? And we had to say, well, they have a right to express their views. This is the United States. They said, but you threw them out in Detroit. And we said, well, in Detroit it was different because there were they physically were disrupting the event. This is just a verbal disruption, and we must let it go on. So the Chinese were not at all unhapp- were not at all happy about this, but it did prove one of the points that I think we were trying to get across to them about some of the freedoms that we have in this country. No, it really was very positive, I have to say. There were a couple things. I said there was something I, I wanted to tell you in, in terms of how things went. And so an incident happened that I had forgotten until I was recently talking with someone else who had been on the trip. She was the person we hired to work on the media team. Her name was Marcia Burek, and she reminded me that one morning, she and I were rooming together. We had to save money on this trip. So one morning at 7.30, we got a call from one of the American journalists, Stan Carnot, who was a very famous American journalist who had been a Vietnam War correspondent. But Marsh answered the phone. I was still sound asleep. And he said, well, I'm standing out here waiting to see the Chinese leave. And she said, what do you mean leave? We're, we're, you know, we're not due to leave for another two or three hours. And he said, oh, no, they're going to leave. And she said, why? He said, open your door. I'm standing outside. So she opens the door. And he shows her the headlines from the Washington Post that says that the Americans had started bombing Haiphong Harbor. And he said, the minute the Chinese see this, they're going to march right out of here. The two of us go, and we knock on the door of the head of the delegation, and we show him the headlines. We say, we have something we need to tell you. We want you to know in case this has any effect on uh, your plans for the rest of the trip. This was sort of at the beginning. This, we weren't even halfway through the trip. And he looked at it, and he, he spoke English. And he looked at us, and he said, this is a people-to-people people trip. This is not a government-to-government government trip. We will continue with our friendship tour of the United States, yo beside the dr and, and that yo beside the dr which is friendship first, competition second, was sort of the mantra of the whole trip. And it really was something, not just on the ping pong trip, but something that was the mantra for all future, certainly athletic teams that we had visit us uh, over the years. But it really was um, it was a good example of how both the Chinese and the American side viewed this initial foray that we wanted to do our best to make it work. And there were signs, there was an enormous amount of curiosity and interest on the part of Americans. One of the things that surprised me, the Chinese were asked constantly by the media, by people they would meet, by other teammates, is America like what you expected? You know, What has surprised you the most? I would sort of overhear them say, well, what surprised us most has been the outpouring of friendship that we're feeling and how welcoming the Americans have been to us. And when I fir- I first heard them say that a couple times and I thought, oh well, you know, that that's nice, but it sounds like something that they've been... It's very diplomatic. Very diplomatic. Yeah. And it's probably something they were told to say mm-hmm. when they were here. But as I had more chance to be amongst them when they were out meeting Americans and, and watching and observing how Americans were reacting, I actually, that's probably what I came away with most from the trip, was just how interested in the players themselves and in China the majority of Americans were. I mean, as I said at the beginning, we had all been, both sides had been preconditioned to be mistrustful of the other, and So the other thing, in addition to being not just surprised, but actually very proud of the Americans who were interacting and and how gracious they were and how warm and how curious they were, I, I was very interested in how quickly we were able to put aside those preconceived notions. There were people out waving flags that the American and Chinese flag together, and I don't know how much of it was curiosity, interest in the unknown or in the other, but it was very impressive. Great. So,
0: you touched on a bit about the changes to public perception of each other, but were there any other impacts of this trip on U.S.-China relations?
1: I think there were many. Um, and they came at different sort of levels. Mm-hmm. What about immediately after the, the trip, in the subsequent years? Well, immediate, subsequent years. For the committee, it was a huge change. Up until then, we had been an organization that was focused on public education. And we worked with a variety of constituencies, whether it was World Affairs Councils or the media or academics, to help Americans better understand China, because after all, this was a world pre-internet. <laughs> There were very few things that were written about China. If there was an article once every three or four months, that was unusual. And generally, that was written by a Canadian or by a European who had access to China because American journalists did not. And up until 71, 72, no American academics or others had the access that would be able to write thoughtful, accurate articles or stories or books about China. So for us it had a very large impact because up until then we had been doing public education Mm -hmm. and now we were launched in a whole new kind of career (laughs) or a whole new path. The two people who had been our liaison officers at the mission to the UN, the Chinese mission to the UN, came to us and said that they had been so pleased with the visit of the Chinese ping pong team that they would like the National Committee to host the visit of a group of acrobats that was going to come in the fall. And we agreed to do that, and then that led to one thing and another, and pretty soon the committee found itself in the business of running exchanges. And we made a calculated decision in 1974 that we would focus solely on exchanges with China which we did for many years, and we, through that process, we brought professionals in a whole range of fields, whether it was publishing or stage management or librarians or university presidents or dance choreographers. You pick a field, and we sent the first delegation in a particular area to China to exchange ideas, best practices, et cetera, with their Chinese colleagues. Uh, some of those were one off programs, some of them were part of a two part exchange where the comparable Chinese team or university or organization or whatever would come back here. But because we were a very small organization, our sort of modus vivendi was to arrange the first exchange um, in a particular field and then hope that the individuals in that particular discipline or field would go on if they were so disposed to do so and run exchanges on their own. So by spreading out and by taking people from all across the United States, what we did was um, expand very rapidly the number of people in this country in a lot of various professions uh, who had some sort of contact with China and some sort of knowledge of China. And that helped smooth the way for eventually in 1979. The Carter administration was able to establish diplomatic relations between China and the United States. So the work that we did sort of laid the groundwork for that to be an acceptable move on the part of the federal government
0: Great. Um, so finally, what have been some of the lasting implications of this trip? and in your view, what are some of th- what is the legacy of ping pong
1: diplomacy today? Well, for me, the legacy of ping pong diplomacy is the sort of basis on which the committee and the rest of the engagement with China to the foundation on which it rests. And that's the people-to-people aspect of it. When I think back on what was successful about the early years of the relationship, it's that the two governments actually stepped back, they reduced restrictions, they were able to accept some of the initiatives of the other side. So that provided a parameter in which people-to-people organizations and individuals could move at their own pace in the relationship. I think that's one of the strongest aspects is that across the United States at all levels of government and in all disciplines, there's an extraordinary web that has been built over the past 50 years of people interacting with, with one another. And I think that relationship has been the most successful when the two governments have been willing to step back and enable the people to move forward at their own pace. I think there's a lot less suspicion. There's a lot less hostility. And unfortunately, what we're seeing in the relationship today is a lot of suspicion and a lot of fear, and a lot of disrespect on both sides. Uh, a lot of nationalism that has reared, and you know, sometimes nationalism can be good and can be productive, but at other times it can be just the opposite. And I'm afraid that that is the case in both countries today. I think we all need to take a step back. We need to take a deep breath. I'd love for us to be able to get back to that stage where we are, once again, curious about each other, willing to work together with each other, willing to share ideas. I know I'm probably seen as Pollyannish and and naive, but I do think there are people in both countries who strongly feel the need to and urge to go beyond what I'm afraid is becoming in both countries a a narrow cocoon and a narrow focus just on ourselves rather than thinking about what might be a better world if we were able to talk to one another and find ways to collaborate with one another and find ways to be honest with one another. There are two phrases in Chinese for the word friend, there's panyo and there's jangyo. We always talk about being panyo, about being friends, but when you're jangyo, you're the kind of friend that is going to be honest with the other side, a real friend, and real friends can tell each other what they really think. And I'm afraid we have gotten away from the point where we can do that. We've certainly gotten away from it in terms of the two governments talking to one another. I'm hoping that we still have that ability when we are talking on a person-to-person level. And I think we just need more of that in order to get the relationship back, not on the same track that it was on, because there were flaws in the way we were interacting with one another. But at least I think we need to be talking together in that jung-yo way in order to make sure that we leave our children with a world in which you don't have two armed camps t- once again into a cold war where the hostility just prevents so much that can be positive and that can be creative and that can be... Of long-lasting value for the world. We have to somehow find our way back to being able to engage with the Chinese in that way. I strongly disagree that engagement was only a one-way thing and that only the Chinese benefited from it. Americans benefited enormously and the whole world benefited from a strong stable China and a strong stable relationship between China and the United States. And I think we have to find some way to get back to that. Great. Thank you so much for this very insightful interview. Thank you.
0: For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.